Thank you, Donna. And uh, it's amazing how God kind of works all those parts of a service together. We don't necessarily collaborate. Maybe, maybe we should more, but it seems like the Holy Spirit does a pretty good job of, of bringing uh, the different elements together. Uh, because as we uh, consider the, the passage this morning in John chapter 3, it really speaks to us as far as our understanding, our, our seeing clearly um, our role in God's plan. Uh, you know, and, and I think many people would really love to, to know their role, their place in life, in God's plan, and something we could spend a lot of time kind of searching for that. And, and there's something about this section as John the Baptist comes back into the picture and speaks that it helps us um, to, to just have a better sense of how we fit into what God is doing. And, and just to see that John understood how he fit into God's plan. And that really helped him to, to deal with how he moved forward, how he encouraged his followers. And how even if we back up a verse from where we're at into verse 21 of John 3, maybe it helps us see a little bit better where we're headed as well. And in fact, it has that whole concept of seeing because the light comes and gives us that, that truth. Remember verse 21 of John, John 3 says, but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. So as we trust ourselves to Jesus and he opens our eyes, what, what ought to be our response is to go to the light, right? To move towards Jesus and how he reveals to us his truth and how he reveals to us, especially through his word, his plan moving forward and what it is he's doing, right? In drawing people to himself, in, in building his church, in having a future. And so then John turns our our eyes to a, a new situation. So follow along with me as we read John 3, 22 through 30. It says, After these things, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, where he was spending time with them and baptizing. Jesus also was baptizing in Anon near Salim, because there was much water there, and people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Therefore, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses, but I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and listens or, and, and who hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. 
And so the scene shifts. We've had Jesus in Jerusalem through the last, well, back since the, the middle of chapter 2. Events, he's, he's gone to, to Jerusalem, first of all, for the Passover. But while he's at, in Jerusalem, in the temple for the Passover, remember he went in and cl- cleared out all of the people who were selling animals and, and, and changing money. It's like, get out of here. This is not a marketplace. This is to be a place of prayer for the peoples, for the nations. You're turning it into a robber's den. Of course, he caused, would have caused a great stir by doing such a thing. He's going in the face of the religious leaders, especially of the priests who were in charge of that area. We get from Nicodemus what he says, that Jesus performed miraculous signs. So people were starting to look and say, who is this man who can heal? Who is this man who can cast out demons? And we have that discussion with Nicodemus, right? Because Nicodemus is coming to a conclusion about that. God must be with you. Remember how then Jesus just lays out for him his need for a Savior. Nicodemus, all your good works, all the ways you've followed the traditions of the elders, all of your great learning, all of your teaching that you've done, all the recognition that you have from people, throw it out. You've got to start over. You have to be born again and start being born spiritually. You have to be born as one who has believed in the one that God has sent. You must be born again. You must believe in the one that God has sent. You must totally trust in me. And so we've had some radical things go on while Jesus is in Jerusalem. And so as John continues on here in verse 22, it says, after these things, so after all that has happened, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea, and there he was spending time with them and baptizing. And, and, and where it says in the land of Judea, of course, Jerusalem is in the land of Judea. So your translation might say in the countryside of Judea. And that maybe a, gives us a better sense of what we're trying to get here, is that they went from the city environment and all of the busyness and all of the, the crazy things that happened there all of the people says, let's, let's come away. Let's go out into the countryside. Let's go where we can think, where we can, can be with one another. Let's get out of town to where it's quieter. And it says, interesting, it says there where he was spending time with the disciples. A literal translation of that word spending time means to wear away by rubbing. Kind of an odd way to put it. But I don't know, it gives me the idea of maybe breaking in a new pair of shoes. Right? You just spend time in them. And after a while, they, they start to conform to your foot. But the idea is that they didn't just go and, and were there for a day or two. It likely means that they spent maybe weeks or even months out there together and, and did life together. And, and Jesus taught them. He understood that that what he was doing was not just, you know, boom, 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 you are my disciples. But he was investing his life into these men who would then be taking the, the truth to others after, after he had gone back to heaven. And so he's, he's taking this time. He's, he's getting 
giving them a chance to really get to know him. You could say he was getting to know them in a human sense, but of course he, he knew them better than, than they realized. But humans, humanly speaking, he was developing a relationship with them. And they were ministering to the people who'd come out to hear Jesus teach. Uh, they, were, they were baptizing, he says. I mean, it's clear that Jesus was baptizing. If we jump ahead and cheat a little bit to chapter 4, verse 2, uh, John keys us in and says, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were. And so they're actually getting practical ministry training, right? So as people believe the message of repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the other gospels tell us Jesus went about preaching that, right? As they identified with that, that and were beginning to repent, they would be baptized to say, yes, I identify with this message. And so Jesus was doing that together with his disciples, doing the actual baptizing. And it would have looked quite a bit what Jesus was doing with his disciples, quite a bit like what was going on with John the Baptist. He was, at that same time, still active, still out preaching and telling people, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He was still baptizing, and, and according to verse 23, uh, people were still coming. So John's circumstances here, it's interesting how John nails them down with some really concrete uh, phrases. Gives us a specific location, uh, Anon, near Salim. We don't know exactly where that is, but it's somewhere along the Jordan uh, River, uh, probably maybe up a little bit north of Judea. And John also assumes, John, the gospel writer, assumes that we know what the other Gospels say because he says, well, this was before John was thrown into prison. He's assuming, well, you already know what Matthew, Mark, and Luke told you about what happened to John and how Herod threw John into prison because, of, because he was condemning his, you know, what he was doing with, you know, with, with his, with, morally in his marriage. And even you know that John would eventually have his, be beheaded says, so this is before that happened, right? And he's carrying out his ministry. He's calling people to repentance. He's preparing them for the coming of the promised one. And people are still coming. He was making an impact. And so probably Jesus was somewhere near the Jordan River down in Judea. John, a few miles up, up the river at Anon. And we're given even some practical information. Why, why was John there? Well, there was much water. Well, if you're going to have crowds of people coming, you better have water. I would say if you're going to baptize, you need much water because I think he was sprinkling. I think he was immersing people into the water. But as they're there, you've got these two ministries. They look a lot alike, and people are probably thinking, huh, well, here's, here's this Jesus from Nazareth. He's preaching and baptizing. Here's John. He's from Judea, from out in the wilderness area. He's preaching. He's baptizing. How do we put this all together? And so verse 25 tells us, there arose a discussion on the part of John's disciples with a Jew about purification. And we don't know who this Jew was. And in your translation, some of the manuscripts have that plural, the Jews. Um, and usually when it says the Jews, it's talking about the religious leaders. If it's just a Jew... It probably doesn't mean, it's not really 
pointing to his ethnicity so much because they were all Jews, right? I mean, there probably were a few Gentiles mixed in coming to hear them preach, but it probably means someone who was one of the rabbis or one of the scribes, one of the teachers, was engaging with John's disciples, and, and they're talking about this whole idea of washings and baptisms, and, and they're having a debate about it. Apparently, it turned, too, to, to this Jesus who's now down baptizing as well. Maybe there was a comparison. Well, why should people come to you to be baptized instead of going to this Jesus who's baptized? There's been a lot of people going that way. And so these, these followers of John somehow were being challenged they're starting to do a little comparing themselves. Verse 26, they tell John, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan to whom you have testified, behold, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. People had been coming to hear John preach. From from Jerusalem, in, in the other Gospels, it tells us that people were, all kinds of people were coming out from Jerusalem. From the whole area of Judea, there, there were people coming out in the middle of nowhere because they'd heard about John. They'd it raised quite, quite a, a, a noticeable event going on, so much so that the religious leaders of, of, of the temple had sent and said, Who are you? Right? And people were still coming, but it seems that even more people were now going hear Jesus preach and teach and to be baptized. John and his disciples had been the center of attention. Everybody had been going there. They'd been part of something big. And now they feel let down. Maybe feel a little bit cheated. After all, John was the one that had pointed Jesus out to people. I mean, who is he to start drawing their crowds away? So they come to, come to their teacher. They're like, John, what's going on here? We're losing, we're losing our crowds. We're losing the attention. Are we fizzling out? What's going on here? And John's answer is really great because he, he gives a proper perspective. And I think John had a proper perspective on his own ministry, but I, th I think we can gather from his perspective even our place in what God is doing in the world. And it says, verse 27, John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. Really important perspective to understand your part in following Jesus and being in his church. I mean, do you get to serve Jesus? I hope you say yes. Because if you have know Jesus as your Savior, you have a place. You have giftings from him. You have ministry to do, right? All believers have a place of service in his body. And it's not theirs because they are so good. Or it's not, oh, well, you go over here and serve over here because you're so bad. No, everyone is one that, that God has selected for the individuals. Turn with me over 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, verses 14 through 18. speaking of the church as, as if it were a body, it says, For the body is not one member, but many. 
If the foot says, because I am not a hand, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. And if the ear says, because I am not an eye, I am not a part of the body, it is not for this reason any the less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But God, this is important, but God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as he desired. He's put us all together in a way that he wants, with a function and an abilities that he wants in order to do something that is for his glory and for the good of the whole body. So this concept that John's about to bring up is not any different for us who are now at church all these many years later. John's situation is, in a sense, the same as ours, recognizing where God has put us, what God has given us to do in the big picture. Now, John served in a different time and a different era, but he had the right perspective. God places us where we are now. And on the one hand, we should not then neglect what he has given to us. And we see John, even though the numbers of people coming to him dwindling, he's still preaching faithfully, isn't he? He's still baptizing faithfully, but knowing where he fits. On the other hand, we shouldn't long for what has been given to someone else. And for John, as we can see, he's not looking to have Jesus' crowds. He's not looking to have the attention that ought to go to Jesus. And in the same way, you know, like Paul talked there in, in 1 Corinthians, we shouldn't look at someone else and what God's doing through them and say, oh, why, why don't I get to do that? Or why don't I get the attention that that ministry gives? Or, or why can't I be in that part of what God's doing? Uh, the issue is, well, where has God placed you? Do you trust him? Does he know what's really good for you and for the body as a whole? So don't be longing for what God has given to someone else, but fully embrace what it is he's given you to do and do it. Don't leave it, leave it go, but embrace it and press into it. Do you trust God to do well? If you do, then that would be the proper response. In fact, it's interesting with Moses, he had kind of a similar situation in the book of Numbers. If you turn with me to Numbers chapter 11, as they're, they're out going through uh, the wilderness, a situation comes up that happened quite a lot is that they started complaining. Oh, well, we got this manna, but we don't have any meat. I can see people in our part of the world saying that, right? <laughs> okay, we got bread, but we really need some meat, right? And the people begin to complain. And, and, and of course, Moses as the leader bears the brunt of it. They come to him, right? Where's the meat? And God answers back. And, and one of the th things God graciously does is he shows uh, Moses that he, he needs some help. And he has Moses gather 70 elders, leaders from the people of Israel. And God has his spirit come on these 70. And they begin to prophesy. I don't know exactly what that means, but it was obvious that the Holy Spirit was working on them, and they were speaking God's truth. 
some way. And everybody recognized it. Everybody knew it. But then we get to Numbers 11, verse 26. It says, But two men had remained in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad, and the name of the other was other Medad. And the Spirit rested on them. Now they were among those who had been registered, but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophesying and that the Lord would put his spirit on all of them. Then Moses returned to the camp, both he and the elders of Israel. And you can see where, where God is graciously showing Moses that there's no lack of his spirit. He can work through him. He can work through 70. And Moses even gets it. Yeah, if God wanted to, he could just put his spirit in all the people. Wouldn't that be exciting? But he's got a different perspective. Joshua is, is jealous for Moses. It's like, they're just out there doing it without you. Moses is like, oh, don't be jealous on my behalf. That's what God wants to do? That's great. If God wants to put his spirit on all the people, well, that's God, what God does. That would be even better, right? Turns out that the actual prophesying was a temporary thing for those 70. They did it that one time to show that God was working in them. And that was what God had for them. There's a sense in which Moses understood, whatever God gives me, it's from him. It's not me. I'm not what makes this, this nation move forward or makes anything good happen or, or causes these miracles to happen. But it's God. John's kind of doing the same thing here. It's like, disciples, don't, don't worry. God's got something good. And Jesus gaining greater crowds, hasn't, that's all right. That hasn't been given to me. In fact, now he gives his witness, uh, verses 28 through 30, back in John chapter 3. He says, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. Now, this is just a brief summary of what we already saw in chapter 1, right? So let's just go do a quick review of what we saw in chapter 1 about John witnessing about Jesus. So let's, we're going to reread uh, verses 19 through 41. It says, this is the testimony of John. What did John say about Jesus? When the Jews were sent, sent to him priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? And they confessed. He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ or the Messiah. They asked him, What then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. And they said to him, Who are you? So that we may give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. Now when they had been sent from the Pharisees, now they had been sent from the Pharisees, they asked him and said to him, Why then are you baptizing if you are not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered and said them, saying, I baptize in water. But, one, but, among, excuse me, 
but among you stands one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. Does he understand who he is in comparison to Jesus? He does, doesn't he? Verse 28, these things took place in Bethany, beyond the Jordan, where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. John testified, saying, I have seen the Spirit descending as a dove out of heaven, and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, He upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned, turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speaking and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which translated means the Christ. And we've already spent time going through all that, but you get that John the Baptist was he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. All of this he's been saying about Jesus. And you remember what happened, Andrew, and we believe that the other disciple of John's that followed Jesus was John, who's writing this gospel. When they heard that, they're like, well, of course, let's go follow the one who's actually the Messiah. You're pointing the way. You're preparing the way. The obvious thing is to go follow him now. And I believe John the Baptist would have been thrilled if every one of his disciples would have said, oh, well, let's go follow Jesus. That was his purpose. And, and again, you do have to kind of wonder why they didn't. And it may be that that's why they're having a struggle now, some of the ones who remained. Maybe they'd had a wrong view, a wrong sense of loyalty to John thinking, oh, well, John, he's, he's our teacher. We've got to stick with him. Or John's saying, look, look, there's the lamb. Follow the lamb. John's whole ministry was about getting people ready for Jesus and passing them on to following him. And I do wonder if maybe that's not why he ended up being, being beheaded, that God said, okay, we've just got to take John totally out of the picture so that people can see Jesus clearly. I don't know, just a little speculation. But then John gives them a picture from their culture. He says, let me, let me put it this way as he continues on. Verse 29, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the 
bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. So he uses an illustration from daily life, a a wedding in Judea. And the friend of the bridegroom was someone who had a lot more responsibility than the best man has today. He was the go-between between between the bride and groom because they didn't spend a lot of time together before they were married. It was all arranged, and and they may have known each other, but he he was this go-between. And he made the arrangements for the wedding itself. He took the invitations out to the people who were supposed to come to the wedding. He even presided, kind of like the MC, over the wedding feast. He was even entrusted with a very important responsibility of guarding the bridal chamber where the couple would go after the wedding was over. And when the bride was in there, it was his job to not let anyone in but the groom. And of course, being the friend of the groom, he would recognize his voice, right? And then he would let him in to go to be with his bride. John says, and that's where the friend of the groom His heart's full of joy, right? Because at the end of the wedding, the one thing he wants more than anything is for his friend, the groom, to be with his bride and for to have them move together into this new life that is now theirs as they've entered into the covenant of marriage. John says, that's exactly my role. I'm just here to take people, the bride, and see them united with the groom, Jesus the one who will save them from their sins, the one who is the Messiah, the anointed one, and see them move on into the new life that God has for them. That's what fills me with joy. He loves the people. He loves them so much he doesn't want them just to stay with him. He wants them to move on and have forgiveness of sins and be part of the rule and reign that Jesus is going to bring. And he pulls it all together in verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. It's a necessity, that word. This must happen. Jesus must get more and more attention. Jesus must get more and more glory. Jesus must be the focus of all that's happening. Therefore, I've gotten a lot of attention. I need to fade into the background. And so, yeah, you're going to see fewer and fewer people come to me. And I think we struggle with the same things that his disciples struggled with sometimes. We get our sights on the wrong things. Uh, We don't realize that what we're fixated on a lot of times is just one step in what God is doing. There's a whole process going on. And we need to get our eyes on Jesus and what his purposes are and where he says this is all going to end up. We need to be faithful with what we're doing right now, like John was, right? He kept on preaching, kept on baptizing. But he knew that wasn't the end. That wasn't the goal. If he were to have worked to draw people back away from following Jesus, that would have been just like the friend of the bridegroom going into the bridal chamber instead of the groom. It would have been treacherous. It would have been traitorous for John to try to draw those people after himself. But he had his eyes on the long-term plan of God. And if he claimed a following for himself, it would have been counterproductive and would have actually put him at odds with his own Savior. 
that his role was going to be diminished was not a bad thing. And he, was, he, it was, he shouldn't have been holding on to that role and, and the size of following that he'd once had. It led for the, for the best thing for him to fade out. And in the meantime, he kept on doing, again, what God had called him to do. He kept on preparing the way and pointing people to Jesus. For us, do you realize how much we're like John? Our job is to point people to Jesus, right? It's not to, to draw people after me or after you or after our church body or after people who are like us. Our job is to prepare the way so people can get to know Jesus, so people can enter into a relationship with Jesus, have their sins forgiven, and be with him forever. And sometimes we think maybe we're indispensable. Well, none of us are. We're all going to fade out, right? So the question is, are we saying, okay, here's the big picture. Well, how do I serve best until that time that Jesus says, okay, now your time is done? Looking, are we gathering people to follow Jesus who will then be following him after we've moved on? Is Jesus' church being prepared for what's next? Are there people in training, you could say, to step into to ministries that are going on now to then help carry them on or, or to start new ministries, ones we didn't realize would be needed or had ever thought about, oh, this is the way you could do that. Is Jesus' church ready to see others take the place of those who are doing things now? Because we're not all going to be here forever, are we? We're going to fade out unless we all just go at once, right? Have you helped prepare the way? If you're an older believer, been in ministry for a while, who's coming alongside you? Who's doing it with you? Who might take your place when the time comes when you can't do that any longer? Because our one and only focus needs to be that people keep on coming to Jesus. People keep on being discipled and, and know him better, right? So are we looking for Jesus' kingdom or clinging to an earthly one? Sometimes our, our eyes can get even on our country, right? Are we first Americans or are we followers of Jesus first and foremost? Oh, we need to be faithful citizens of this country, yes, but only as far as it helps bring people to Jesus because ultimately he is going to rule it all, right? He will one day rule over all of the nations. He's given us a privileged place here we should use that faithfully, but always be saying, oh, but look at what is coming. Let's keep on moving to what is coming. We have to be faithful where we are like John the Baptist, but always keeping in mind what lies ahead and how God wants to use me toward that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for John's example, John the Baptist's example, and for John for telling us about that and, and how you worked in and through them and, and now we benefit down the road so far. Help us to uh, turn our eyes upon Jesus as we sang earlier. Help us to avoid getting our eyes on our own glory or on things that are only, only a step along the way and, and keep on looking to the, the fact that one day we will be with you 
One day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to your glory. And help us to not be distracted by all the things that are going on around us. And just we keep on just moving into the light so that people can see that you are at work. We just thank you for giving us that privilege. In Jesus' name.